guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Well, Happy New Year to all of you. Happy 2023. Wish you blessings. Your blessings upon you and uh, all of your good resolutions, which you make to, um, to grow and continue to conform to the will of the Lord in your lives. Wish you as well blessed solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. We venerate as the bearer of salvation, the Ark of the Covenant. And we venerate her son as the source of peace, the Prince of Peace, on this World Day of Peace. We pray for the ending of conflicts and hostilities between nations, the ending of wars, through the conversion of hearts, that all peace and order in the world is to be found only through the peace and order of the, of the soul, the, the individual conversion. So we pray for peace throughout the world, above all, through Christ, who is, our, who is our peace. Today, though, I want to take a step back and address an issue of general importance to our parish. To reflect here at the beginning of a new year and the ending of, of an old year on where we've been and where we're headed and where we can go. If you read the bulletin before Mass begins, you'll know um, I've addressed a, uh, a situation here in our parish where a number of parishioners, actually here from Christ King and from Blessed Sacrament, have undertaken a campaign, a letter-writing campaign, to the Archbishop to complain about certain aspects of my leadership here at these parishes over the last three years. And that information was communicated to me by the Archbishop's representative, and that was information that created, frankly, a lot of turmoil and frustration in me that I've been working through over the, these last few weeks in prayer and in conversation with you know, kind of my, my squad, my support group, my friends, and my spiritual director. So I'd like to address that today. I'd just like to speak to it, though I can't address the concerns of those letters uh, since I, I haven't seen them. But I, I, I do sympathize. I do think there are reasons why parishioners might be unhappy or dissatisfied with my leadership. I'm not perfect. I am weak. I am lazy and selfish at times. But I also feel that since my arrival here in this assignment, there have been a, a lot of unnecessary misunderstandings and what I feel to have been a general lack of goodwill on the part of those who criticize my leadership. Case in point being, I was not approached with these concerns. They were sent to the Archbishop. And instead of bringing those to me, it does feel as if um, a situation has been created where an attempt to create as bad an impression as possible has been underway. And somewhat of a rush to judgment has taken place. Now, I also think there are lots of reasons why parishioners might be excited and pleased about the direction that our parish is headed. And I'm sorry that some of us don't share that view, and I would like to work to change that. But before I address maybe what I think are the main concerns, I just want to clarify, I'm, I don't really care about my reputation 
I'm not interested in advancing my career in any way. I'm not jockeying for some future position in the church. Um, I'm interested in serving Christ and his bride right where I am and doing so in the best way that I can for my own salvation and the sanctification of God's people. That's my goal. That's all I care about. And so I want these parishes to flourish, flourish as places where the gospel is proclaimed and lived and shared. And I also want to say the Archbishop uh, has affirmed that he trusts uh, me as a priest. He supports me as a priest. And his representative, the Vicar for Clergy, Father Brian Schieber, expressed his understanding that this is a difficult and challenging assignment and that they want to help me and, and really help us in any way that they can. And that was uh, very affirming. I was very grateful for that. Now, again, I can't address the concerns that were presented in those letters directly. Uh, for the most part, those letters were anonymous, and they weren't shared with me. But their summary was. Basically, a, a, a few themes emerged, and those were passed along to me. And I don't, I don't want to address those concerns here directly. But I will say that I, I am sorry for the ways that I have responded to criticism in the past, I'm very often uh, stressed, feeling worn down, and unappreciated. Whether that's justifiable or not, that's how I feel. And as months go by and years go by, I find myself more and more resentful. And my fuse is a little shorter. Especially when in my efforts to build trust and to reach out and to reconcile with those perhaps that I've trampled on don't seem to matter or are met with rejection or indifference. And of course, now these letters have certainly created a lot of turmoil in me. Because it does feel as if um, some people, at least, are going on the offensive in a way that's trying to attack rather than to work together to resolve these conflicts. So I say all of that, right? That when, I, when I'm short tempered or I react negatively to criticism, that I'm feeling stressed or worn down, I say that not as an excuse but as a confession of my sinfulness and weakness. A public act of repentance for those actions. I am sorry for them. I'm not always proud of the way that I go about my work as a pastor. So if I have in any way trampled on you or hurt you, I'm sorry for that. And I ask your forgiveness. I don't excuse it. I ask your pardon. One of the other themes in that message was that um, we have not communicated well. Some of the decisions and changes that have been made in the parish uh, seem to still leave some in the dark about their motive or their reasons why or where it is that we're headed. And I'd like to address that concern directly. We have not had a pastoral council here at Christ the King since I arrived. The pastoral council that existed was disbanded by the previous pastor before he was reassigned. But when I came, I was overwhelmed with three parishes, trying to figure out how things uh, went. That was a, that was a, a lot to, to try to learn all at once, and I did not feel comfortable picking or naming persons to participate in that, in that advisory council. And so I was reluctant. And then within nine months of my arrival here, the pandemic started. Mass was... Uh, 
shut down, churches were closed, right? And then we began this long process of reopening where very few people were coming to Mass, very few people were even present. Um, those who were were wearing masks, and I didn't know what you looked like, let alone what your names were, or what your background was, whatever that may be. But I've been praying about this for some time, and I think the time is right for us to begin again. I think this could be a good opportunity for us as a parish to gather strength. Let's go on mission again. To really connect again with the reason for why we're here. And so in the coming weeks, I would like to begin the process of nominating representatives of this parish to be members of an advisory council to the pastor from the various groups and cultures that make up our parish community to provide a forum for communication, feedback, collaboration that I think up to this point has been lacking. And hopefully address some of that tension or feeling of a lack of communication. So I ask you to pray for this work. I ask you to pray for that intention. I ask you to pray about who would be the right candidates for this work, for this, for this leadership and advisory council, uh, to provide counsel and feedback to your pastor. However, and this is an important point for us to consider here at the beginning of the year, regardless of where we head in the future, that in order for this communication and feedback and this collaboration to really work, we have to be absolutely clear about what our parish is for, why it exists, what it's here to do and to be. We need to be clear about the mission of Christ the King Parish. And I believe this will be one of the first and most important tasks that this parish council will need to address, to articulate why does Christ the King exist? What is it here to be and to do? So as a way of maybe articulating or helping to guide how we go about answering that question, or shaping the question itself, I'd like to share a story of a recent comeback that I came across that could inspire and guide our reflection. How many of you have ever heard of Barnes & Noble booksellers? Pretty familiar? How many of you have been hearing bad news about the viability of Barnes & Noble booksellers? Not so many. Well, I've been reading about this. Barnes & Noble, I didn't realize, has been around since the 1880s. It's a very old company. And they, in the digital age, went through a steep decline. They, they did great when people were doing things like reading books and buying books. <laughs> but with the rise of uh, digital commerce and Amazon, they saw a great drop in their market share. Stores closed, revenue dropped. That was just a general trend. In fact, one of their competitors, Borders, if you remember them, did go out of business. Barnes & Noble managed to hold on. They, they, they did some interesting things to try to continue to diversify their revenue streams as people, the market uh, predictions went. People moved away from hard copy, hard books into the Kindles and the, the electronic ways of consuming media. Right? And the handwriting was on the wall. You're not going to survive this unless you adapt. 
And I don't know if you had this experience. I haven't been to a Barnes & Noble in years, but I used to go in there and I, it was strange because they'd have this giant store, right? And, and I'm going there to buy a book, but I have to walk like 40, 50, 60 yards winding through all these other things, these cafes and toys, board games, bric-a-brac, all this stuff to get like to the books that were in the back. Like, what kind of bookstore is this? Clearly, you're not very interested in selling books. I stopped going. I stopped buying books at Barnes & Noble. And they tried all these different ways of adding cafes, even restaurants to their, to their shops, and all these different ways of selling things other than books. Well, none of these things seemed to work. In 2020, the revenue continued to drop, and when, of course, the pandemic hit, they went into meltdown. They laid off uh, thousands of employees. They closed dozens of stores. And then they did something radical. They, they hired a new CEO. He had a record of transforming some bookstores in Great Britain. And he did so in a very simple way. He followed a very simple formula. Bookstores are here to sell books. He began a radical transformation of Barnes & Noble back to its origins. He began by not discounting his books. Our books aren't underpriced. We sell them for what they're worth. They stopped doing promotions, giving away things for free or for discounts, right? If you give something away for free, you devalue it. And then he stopped taking money from publishers. Publishers would sign these deals with big nationwide chains like Barnes & Noble, and they would pay Barnes & Noble a lot of money to promote these books that they would then buy in large quantities and then stack in the entries of the, of, the church, of, the, um, of the bookstore, right? When you walked into a store like that, you'd see the latest New York Times bestseller or the latest political autobiography or whatever it was, right? He said, we're not going to take those promotional deals anymore. We're just going to find the books that people want to buy and that people want to read, and we're going to sell those. We're going to put those in the front of our store. And this made publishers pretty angry. That meant they had to find authors who would write the kinds of books that people wanted to read and buy. It was a lot more work. So Barnes & Noble began this process, and they put the control back in the hands of store managers and employees, and they told them, take the things off of your shelves that don't belong there, and you organize your store, and you arrange it in a way that you want it to, to look to customers as they come in. You put in what you think your people are interested in, and that you yourselves are interested in. And he articulated the challenge for Barnes & Noble is this. Our job now is to create an environment that is intellectually satisfying, not in a snobbish way, but in the sense of feeding your mind. That's the mission that Barnes & Noble went about pursuing. And slowly the chain began to turn around. In 2021, sales started to increase again. They opened stores this past year, and they just announced in 2023, they're opening 30 new stores. Some in places where they used to be located, some in places where big, dominant companies like Amazon tried to start a bricks-and-mortar store and failed. 
So what's the lesson that we can draw from all this? What is the way this might inspire and guide us in our reflection about our process of reconnecting with our mission? Why is it that we're here? Well, I think the lesson about this story, hopefully it continues on the same trajectory. The story is a bookseller made the very radical decision to put books and readers first and then put everything else second, no matter how good or worthy it might have been. As a result, it flourished. The lesson then for us is, what do we put first as a parish? And what's second? No matter how good or worthy an activity or a good might be, what do we put first above all? And let everything else take its place around that. That's the question we have to answer. And we can't just say the right answer that we know to be true, but we have to actually make it our own and live it. We have to reorganize the shelves, so to speak, so that whatever the equivalent of books and readers is for us, that comes first. How can we live our lives? How can we live our parish life as Catholic Christians in such a way as to, let's say, create an environment that is spiritually satisfying in the sense of feeding your soul? Yesterday morning, we received news that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, Father Benedict, as he wished to be referred to, has died at the age of 95. We pray for him in our intentions today. I have a great deal I'd like to share about him, but that's for another day. Suffice to say, today, he is perhaps one of the greatest theological minds the church has ever enjoyed. His impact on the life of the church as a, as a priest, as a theologian, as the official theologian of the church, and ultimately as the, as the pope, the successor of St. Peter, is enormous. An enormous influence. And personally, I found in Pope Benedict a teacher and a father that reflected the truth of God to me. It made me want to give my life in joyful service to Jesus and his bride, the church. But all of that ultimately boils down to this. His last words were reported to be, I love you, Jesus. All the work of his life, all of the responsibilities that he carried out, the burdens that he had to, had to discharge and challenges that he had to face, all of the life of his priestly ministry and of his discipleship was expressed in that last breath, that last exhalation. I love you, Jesus. And that suggests to me something like what our answer needs to be. In the end, if we answer that question, what do we put first with anything other than I love you, Jesus, and I love the things that you love, then may the Lord forgive us, and may he turn our hearts to him again. Because I think that will be a comeback story that we all get to live out and not just hear about. 
as if it happened at some old, dusty, dying bookstore. It can happen anywhere. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.